Hi, I'm Bruce Tolgan, author of The Art of Being Indispensable at Work, published by Harvard Business Review Press. And this is The Indispensables, a podcast featuring conversations with real go-to people who stand the test of time in the real world of work. Each week, I ask my guests what they do differently that sets them apart in the workplace, what makes them tick, and what makes them so successful. In this episode, I talk with professor of political science, Chloe Thurston. We didn't talk about politics. We talked about paying it forward and building up relationships with your colleagues at work. Welcome to The Indispensables. I am so pleased to have on as our guest, Chloe Thurston, Professor Chloe Thurston, whom I have to say for full disclosure, I've known since she was five years old. Uh, Chloe is assistant professor of political science at Northwestern University, where she teaches courses on American politics and public policy. She's author of the 2018 Cambridge University Press book at the boundaries of home ownership, credit discrimination and the American state, which won the J. David Greenstone Award for the best book in politics and history. She's been published in so many academic journals as well as popular media outlets. She's a faculty fellow at Northwestern's Institute for Policy Research, as well as an affiliate of the Center for the Study of Democracy and Diversity. She was most recently a member of the School of Social Sciences at the Institute for Advanced Study at Princeton, which is, I believe, uh, where uh, Albert Einstein hung out for a while. (laughs) Uh, Chloe Thurston, welcome to The Indispensables. Thank you so much, Bruce, for having me. I'm thrilled to have you. And um, you are... uh, sort of a young superstar. How young are you these days? I am 35. And can you just tell your basic story? How did you get to where you are, where you're a professor at Northwestern uh, at, at this uh, at this age? Well, um, I mean, it, it's rather straightforward, I guess. I decided in high school, I got very interested in politics and also social sciences in general. And uh, for a while, thought that I would work in campaigns um, or maybe uh, maybe as a bureaucrat. Uh, it sounded really exciting to me. <laughs> um, and okay, you know, this is this is how we end up in these fields. Um, and so I had this really great opportunity when I was a senior in high school to go work on a presidential campaign, um, to leave a couple of months early. Um, this was something that was allowed at my school as a senior project. And I got to um, embed with a surrogate for that campaign on the campaign trail. It was sort of at the um, ground level. Um, uh, it basically just opened its doors. And I did that for months before going to college. And it really made me, it, it did two things. Um, you know, it, it clarified my interest in understanding politics. Um, but it also made me think that maybe I would actually like to approach it from a more academic level um, and, and a less practical one. So after I ended my work on that campaign, I went to college, I went to Johns Hopkins. Um, and from there, it was just sort of a straight shot into grad school. Um, I did a PhD and then um, I did a postdoctoral fellowship after that. And then I ended up at Northwestern. And you got your PhD in political science? At UC Berkeley. Go Bears. <laughs> And now you're in Chicago. Yep, indeed. Uh, I'm in Evanston, so um, I, my students will um, will require me to, to disclose that I'm in Evanston and not Chicago. It's a big issue for uh, for Chicago natives to be in the suburbs. But yeah, um, it just sort of um, that's that's how where I ended up. Chloe, you talk about the importance of paying it forward, helping others advance. Is your work in the political campaign an example of that? Or was it, do you think of that as service to others? Uh, or was that, um, you know, learning for yourself what you wanted to do or what role you wanted to play in politics and what role you didn't want to play? That's a great question. Um, I, I actually think of that experience in the campaign as maybe being one of the earlier experiences that made me think about the importance of paying it forward. Um, I didn't mention this when I said, spoke of, of my work there, but that door opened for me because one of my teachers in high school 
um, his, his father was running for president, and uh, he decided to take a leave of absence from teaching and, and to go on the campaign trail and invited a student, just opened this up to, to the school um, for students who were interested in joining him. And so this was really generous, um, and it was a great opportunity for me. And I learned so much from that experience. But it wasn't just that I learned about, you know, what it was like to work on a political campaign, but also how important it is to open doors for people that might not otherwise open. Or, you know, this was an opportunity. I I would never have asked someone um, to let me go, you know, follow them around um, in their job. I just wouldn't have, I wouldn't have thought to do it at that age. To get that encouragement, though, um, you know, both like I, I got so much out of the experience, but it also made me realize that there are lots of different ways that I can do that, too. Of course, my my dad's not running for president um, and the sort of the doors that I can open are, are not quite, you know, the same level as, as other people and other levels of their profession or their organization. But on the other hand, it's never really too early to start, you know, teaching people, you know, telling people about unspoken norms or sort of, you know, tacit norms about uh, your industry or in my case, sort of my discipline and how it works that don't necessarily get written down. Um, so so those sorts of things I am, take very seriously in part because I am so grateful to people who have helped me in the past. So, Professor, I shouldn't be surprised that you've just said so many things that I want to unpack. Uh, and uh, but one is the, the, the power of opening doors for other people. Uh, and of course, as you say, uh, it's very rare that uh, one has such a closeness to something so high level as a campaign for president of the United States to open a door like that. Nonetheless, the the value of opening doors for others. Um, so I want to ask you about that. Um, and I love the idea that that when you look at that experience, you can see that a door was open for you. And how did that make you feel in terms of wanting to add value, wanting to bring something to the table? Um, and, uh, and then the other thing you said there was um, how having that door open for you, one of the things it gave you access to was to see what you said, uh, tacit norms, um, things that hide below the radar that, that are hard to learn without experiencing them. So first, uh, that, that having that door open for you, um, gave you insight into, uh, how important it is to open doors for others. But I wonder at, for yourself, having that door open for you, you know, did that sort of light a fire in you of wanting to like add value and, and make really make yourself valuable since that door had been open for you? Oh, absolutely. Um, and you know, I'm not sure if it also had to do with the fact that I was, um, you know, 17 and, uh, really wanted to sort of prove myself, especially in a setting with people who had a lot more experience who were older. Um, but the fact that someone had sort of shown that generosity, uh, to me just, you know, made me very preoccupied with making sure that I did a good job and, um, that I was able to sort of it sounds silly, but to sort of prove, prove that I should be there. Um, but even beyond that, I would say that even after I decided that that sort of professional world wasn't for me, that the world of campaigns, again, I, you know, I think back to those opportunities and I feel even in the pursuit of, in my job now as an academic, um, I still draw from that experience and, you know, think about how well, so I didn't actually fully make use of that opportunity in the sense that, you know, I'm not James Carville now, which um, I, I told told this uh, teacher that I had aspired to be at the time. Um, and, you know, because I'm not doing that, I still feel like I really should make the most out of what I have decided to do um, and also try to help, you know, undergraduates, for example, get the experiences that they they want to help make those kinds of decisions as well. Yeah. I mean, how much when you think of opening doors for people, how much do you think of that in relation to your students? And how much do you think of that in relation to your colleagues? That is a great question. Um, you know, the answer is a lot in terms of both, um, but in different ways. Um, and I think that is shaped a lot by my 
position in my job right now, you mentioned I'm an assistant professor. So for the uninitiated, that means that I don't have tenure. Um, I'm on I'm in this sort of long process of uh, that might culminate, hopefully, in me getting lifetime employment at my current university. Um, but I don't have that now. Um, I'm in a probationary period. And so in terms of what that means for how I interact with my colleagues, well, you know, I'm not really in the position to be a mentor to someone who is more senior to me. That would be absurd. And I think that um, one of the things that I came to um, both in graduate school and sort of right after that was that you don't actually have to be in a you know, in a formal position of power or authority to help open doors for people um, or to sort of build these sorts of, um, you know, types of influence that you even talk about in your book. Um, at my stage, I would say it's more lateral, um, where other people who are sort of in position similar to me, you know, we create different spaces, for example, for um, workshopping our, our early work before it's sort of ready for prime time. Um, or we uh, help to sort of uh, facilitate introductions, um, you know, for our grad students to people who might be able to help them, um, who might be sort of working in some of the areas that they're they're working in. Um, another thing that I think in the, has been very useful in sort of, I guess, a concrete sense, um, and I, I mentioned this issue of sort of tacit knowledge and how do you pass it on when it's not really written down? Um, well, there's a lot of that when it comes to things like writing a book or writing a successful book proposal or grants or things like that. And um, being able to share networks where we share all of those proposals, um, you know, that's a way that people who are sort of of the same um, professional sort of level as me can um, can help each other out um, in ways that I think benefit everybody. But it's different with students um, and with undergraduates where there is, um, I would say, more of a hierarchy um, and, you know, sort of a clearer one. There, I find myself working, I really like working with undergrads and just like young people. And it's one of the things that really gets me going um, and, you know, makes me so excited to, to do my job every day. Um, and that role is something that is... Um, the way that I, where I see the potential for paying it forward when it comes to undergrads and to students that I teach um, is in offering mentorship opportunities, giving them a sense of sort of what it's like to have the kind of job that I have or, you know, something in a similar setting. Um, and also putting them in touch with other people who I know who I've taught in the past who might be um, already you know, pursuing or already successful in some of the career areas that, that those students are thinking about. You know, they're, they're still in college. They don't necessarily know exactly what they want to do yet. And, um, and as you learned from your experience at the age of 17, even if you're looking ahead thinking, I want to be James Carville, uh, you might find out, ah, no, I don't. Yep, that's right. That's right. Um, but, I, you know, and I think that that's the fun thing about, um, you know, having the opportunity to go to college or, you know, I had this re remarkable opportunity in high school to even experiment with that. And um, I think it's important to, to figure out ways to open up that space for students, um, because that's right. The sort of thing you want, things you want to do when you're um, 17, 18, those aren't contracts. Uh, you're not, you know, required to, to continue in that direction. But it is a time where there's some opportunity for trying on those different roles. And uh, uh, how would you describe the mission of your work? I mean, so you, you said that uh, working with young people, uh, working with undergraduates is something that, that excites you and that makes you uh, excited to do your job every day. Um, how much is that your mission? Is your mission about uh, um, doing advanced scholarship, uh, that's part of it. And uh, how much do you see your mission as building up young people and helping them learn how to learn and think? Well, the, I mean, the latter is a big part of my mission, but yeah, you're right. Um, you know, as a faculty member, uh, we are employed or hired to teach students um, and to advise graduate students. Um, but, you know, a big part of our role is research and that's I mean, I see that my mission as both research and teaching focused, and I don't think the two are necessarily at odds with each other. In fact, they can really reinforce each other. Um, you know, I mentioned that I, I really like um, working with with students and sort of getting them excited about um, 
about the things that actually I'm excited about, about working on. Um, and so I see those two things as, as connecting to each other, and there are lots of different ways to bridge them. I work with a lot of undergraduate research assistants um, and bring them into my projects and sort of let them see sort of, again, from the ground level, what it's like to be part of a book project, um, you know, what that process is like, what it's like to start something where you don't necessarily know what the outcome is going to be. Um, and, you know, there can be lots of sort of false starts and I, I like them to be a part of that. Um, but it also sort of speaks to the, you know, the other thing that I would say that drives me in this, and that is, uh, it's very research focused in the sense that I got into this because I realized I was, I really like policy. I'm really interested in, um, in, in sort of matters of public policy and why the U.S. Uh, pursues certain directions in terms of um, the like social policies that that we have and how they work and who they cover and um, and it looks very different in other places and these sorts of questions were things that I you know I could never really answer or at least I decided you know I saw pretty quickly that those weren't really the sorts of questions I would ever be able to engage with um, on uh, working uh, a life of political campaigns. Um, but those are the things that really, really motivate me to in my own research um, and sort of drive drive that that mission forward. I'll say one other aspect of it, and one that I think, in some ways, goes to this idea of of paying it forward, or at least sort of trying to um, give platforms to to people that might not have um, have one or have much of a voice. Is a lot of my work focuses on. Um, groups who are sort of more marginalized from political processes um, and who don't necessarily have a lot of formal representation. And um, so doing work that sort of gives them a voice um, and highlights some of the roles that that um, these people and these groups and some of the organizations that, that speak for them, that they've played in, in the policy process is really uh, it moves my work forward and is also something that I just find um, uh, sort of aligns with, with some of my other, other missions. I mean, I love what you're saying because I think, you know, myself as kind of a lifelong student and um, somebody who always uh, loved uh, being around professors. And I still, to this day, I live in New Haven, you know, surrounded by these professor types, but what's so exhilarating about having a teacher who is, excited by his or her own learning and research and uh, work that you're kind of get a chance to um, hitch your wagon to the star of their journey uh, and their own learning. And so um, sharing that with your students, I think, is a huge part of probably what makes you such a great teacher. That's so nice of you to say, Bruce. Um, I mean, it's certainly an important aspect of how I approach teaching. Um, I think it's really important. And I think back to my experience uh, in college, too, and with teachers that, I, you know, I really that, that stood out to me even before that. And I think it was sort of their ability to convey genuine enthusiasm about, you know, what it is that they are teaching. Um, it, it's infectious. Uh, I know we're not supposed to use that word right now because we're in a pandemic, but... If you're infected by somebody's enthusiasm, that's better than the ambient aerosol of their, uh, <laughs> of, of their, their, their bodily fluids. Yeah, I'll um, take it. Okay. <laughs> so, um, but um, I want to know, uh, uh, I'd love to learn from you a little bit about uh, what it's like to be part of an academic community. And you, you, you gave a little bit of the inside baseball of uh, the tenure process and uh, that as an assistant professor, uh, you're, um, you sit on probation, but, you know, then there are, there, there are different uh, landmarks in, in the academic um, career path. But you're part of an academic community, and um, uh, what are the, what's it like navigating those relationships with other scholars, uh, some of whom do have kind of hierarchical rank, some of whom are uh, in more, uh, as you say, lateral to you? Um, can you say something about how you kind of, how do you look at those working relationships and how do you approach those working relationships with your colleagues? 
Well, um, you know, as someone on a probationary status, I'll say that I love and value all of my senior colleagues who are <laughs> higher on the hierarchy than I am. Okay, so, 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 so some of it is paying fealty to those with rank. <laughs> um, I mean, sure. I, so <laughs> I think that um, this is a really good question, and I, I think it's um, it's an important one, and it's... Definitely, there are some aspects of it, too, that are are very sort of, you know, I think you've highlighted the idiosyncrasies of academia um, as well, being embedded in this kind of organization. Um, How do you how do you navigate those relationships with people who might sort of be in a position to evaluate you later and not even might be, but, you know, uh, or will be in that position to evaluate you later? But also navigating uh, those relationships simultaneous with, uh, I assume, also a bunch of lateral relationships. Yeah. Um, well, you know, I think that, and I, I imagine a lot of people in sort of similar types of organizations and structures would relate to this, but I think that navi- you know, the, the lateral relationships are, um, are, are very different and, you know, in some ways easier uh, to, to navigate because everyone is going through something somewhat similar. Um, I know, you know, my, my department, the... Um, the sort of we call ourselves the junior faculty, um, you know, we're pretty close um, uh, and not anymore because of the pandemic, uh, you know, physically, but uh, we don't get to meet up. But, um, you know, we're all kind of going through the same thing. And so, again, it, that ends up creating this situation where, um, you know, we can um, we, we can support each other um, in, in different ways, even if it's something like, oh, well, I saw that you had uh, applied for this internal grant successfully and would you mind sharing your application materials so I can sort of see, you know, what the components are of, um, of a successful application or, um, you know, I'm thinking about um, having a workshop uh, on my book manuscript and, you know, how did, how did you approach this, um, this task and how did you, uh, how did you sort of conceive of, you know, the format of this kind of workshop or, or something like that? So I think the relationship with the lateral with people who are sort of, you know, uh, at, at the same level is is um, the university like is very conducive to, to building those kinds of relationships just because everyone's kind of in the trenches together um, and uh, has a lot of, you know, both common goals um, and, and concerns. And so that is very different from, you uh, interacting with and sort of managing relationships and expectations with those who are clearly in a position that is, um, you know, like higher, higher within the pecking order. You know, I would say that it's, I manage those carefully. Um, on the other hand, I think that my particular organization and department is, um, you know, there's a real hierarchy in academia, but I, I've seen lots of different institutions and, and how they informally informally organize themselves. And I think some are more flat in the hierarchy. Um, it's not sort of inappropriate for someone who's junior to make a suggestion for how to change something or to start their own initiative. And then there are other organizations that are much more hierarchical where that might be looked at as, you know, inappropriate or um, like, you know, a clear sort of transgression of what's considered normal. Um, and Northwestern and also my department are sort of much more on the, the side of, um, of being pretty flat and pretty open. Um, uh, and that's sort of made navigating that set of politics easier in, in some sense. I don't really need to worry that, um, you know, something I'm about to propose is going to be uh, taken as like uh, sort of inappropriate for, you know, my station. What makes somebody influential with you, somebody you don't want to disappoint? When you think of people you admire, people you seek to emulate, you know, what is it you look for in others or what is it that animates your uh admiration and wanting to emulate someone else? I think that one, and I don't know if this is idiosyncratic, I think you kind of touch on this in your book, in fact, is um, I really don't like when people are very transactional. (laughs) Um, And so when other people show sort of generosity without any sort of expectation of, um, 
you know, being, you know, repaid for that later, it kind of, it makes me remember that, you know, like I want to do that too. Um, and I think that that kind of culture is a really healthy culture. And so, you know, in, in a really funny way, it's sort of people who um, sort of show like, you know, the sort of um, generosity that they don't care, you know, if you repay it or not, are the ones that make me the most, um, the most motivated to make sure that I do that for other people and sort of keep that culture going because it, you know, it also is something that could fall apart if, if uh, people stop acting in that way. Yeah. I think that's so powerful and it's, it's very hard to get for me. I've had a hard time trying to get my arms around that to describe it. And that's why I, one of the reasons why I'm doing this podcast to show real people in the real world who have that sense of mutual generosity that's not quid pro quo driven. It's, 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 a, it's a sense of community, a sense of service, a sense of generosity, um, and, uh, and it is mutual, but it's not about the quid pro quo. Yeah, it's really, it's a sort of, it's an intangible quality, I guess, but um, I think that, that sort of gets at it perfectly. There's something about... Um, I just think it's really good for an organization and a community um, to to all be sort of you know driven by that. Um, but again, I think that it's also a very it can be a fragile equilibrium. And um, and so again, when I see people exhibiting those qualities, it sort of reminds me of, sort of the importance of doing that myself and um, making sure to sort of model that for for other people as well. And it sounds like that was how you interpreted your high school teacher giving you an opportunity to work on his father's presidential campaign. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. Um, are, are there other examples you can think of? Yeah, I can think of another one that um, actually comes full circle. So it's, so it's kind of funny. So um, I, I ended up in that high school um, in part because... There was this young um, junior assistant professor in the American Studies Department at Yale, um, I guess when I was in elementary school, um, and my mom was working in that department. And um, she sort of mentioned to my mom that, oh, you know, your daughter might really like this school. <laughs> There's this private school that she might, you know, um, be interested in that I think would be a really good fit for her. And we just like hadn't thought about it before. It just, it just I don't know, it, it didn't. It wasn't on our radar. It wasn't on my mom's radar. And I was too young to really think about these sorts of things. And so that information and then sort of her help in, in navigating the, the admissions process um, really it opened a lot of doors for me. I think that having that educational experience uh, helped to sort of, you know, propel me certainly on, on the path that I am now, just because, you know, it led to this opportunity to work in politics. And then um, that sort of helped inform my, my opportunity to, to become an academic. And, um, and, you know, I never forgot that, though, because it was something that um, she didn't have to, uh, it, it was just, it was a really helpful piece of information um, that I, you know, we wouldn't have had access to otherwise. Um, and there was no reason that, that she needed to mention that or to help. And she did. And, um, again, now thinking about this as someone who's an assistant professor myself, you know, it was, it was really wonderful that she helped to open that door. Um, and so I said that this, this comes full circle. And so I, I think about this every, every once in a while, it sort of comes back to my mind, but a few years ago, I was doing this fellowship at Northwestern um, called the Public Voices Fellowship, and it's run by this organization called the Op-Ed Program. And basically what they aim to do is um, train a lot of underrepresented voices on, on op-ed pages and newspapers um, about sort of how to write and pitch um, uh, op-eds um, in in the goal there is to try to make those pages less homogenous. And it's been a very successful program. Um, one of their goals is, is clearly sort of to, to do this in academia and to get sort of more academics to contribute to these types of discussions. And um, one of the exercises, though, that we did in that program was we were we were asked to do a free writing exercise about sort of, you know, um, uh, like what sort of motivates you to, to do what you're doing and, you know, what sorts of like memories sort of like drive, drive you forward. And I 
was doing this free writing exercise. And of course this person gave to mind and I was, you know, like, well, I remember this um, act of kindness uh, directed, you know, towards my family a long time ago. And I never really forgot that. And it sort of reminded me of, it, it makes me very clear about the importance of doing that for other people, even these small things. And so I, I wrote that. And then right after I wrote this down, I learned that the same professor had actually helped to um, launch this entire nationwide op-ed project. <laughs> um, uh, wow. and, and, you know, that was, again, it was sort of an example of someone who lives by, you know, lives by this idea of, um, of you know, small things to help give other people, you know, sort of the information and the tools that they need um, uh, to sort of... Uh, sort of push, push themselves further, but also to, to contribute to society. And so. And is that, that sense of contributing to society, acts of kindness to other people, um, to lift them up, um, acts of generosity, um, how much of that um, ethic uh, is at the heart of your interest in your academic interests? So for example, uh, your book about home ownership, uh, about uh, credit and discrimination, uh, in, in, discrimination in credit, and 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 the effect that has on access to home ownership, that kind of public good uh, that you are seeking, or uh, the, the the public good that is that that results from your scholarship, um, is that a coincidence or is that um, is that part of the same, does that, is that driven by the same ethic? That's a good question. You know, I don't think it's a coincidence. Um, you know, on the one hand, sort of where I ended up in that book was, was a very different, um, from where I started and sort of what I thought that book was going to be about when I first started it almost a decade ago. But I think that I, I see that common ethic um in in a lot of my work and i you know i i'm sure there's no coincidence so we're living through this global public health crisis um that health crisis in the united states is exacerbated by um uh, approach approaches to public policy. Um, so uh, you're living through it as a citizen, but also as an expert on public policy, you know, uh, scratching your head. Um, I'm guessing that as a scholar, you are one of those people who has this strange bias toward expertise. Um, but but so you're, you're, you're a scholar, you're a parent, um, you, you have a family. Um, how has the pandemic affected uh, how you work and how you're prioritizing your work. Uh, how, what, what's the effect on your plans on how you have to operate? Well, um, it's been, you know, I think everyone's kind of had their own <laughs> challenges associated with the pandemic. And so mine was, um, I think at the beginning of March, I had sort of written my sort of like to-do list for, for the rest of the academic year. I was on a fellowship and 10 days later, daycare closes for um, what starts to, out to be two weeks and then just ends up being the rest of, of the year. Um, right. And so, um, you know, that that's really challenging. I mean, it's challenging for lots of reasons. Um, this is a work podcast, so I'm just going to stick to, you know, the work reasons. Um, but, you know, if, you, if you're in a field that uh, relies on others or that, you know, it's high on, on collaboration, then um, it can be a little bit jarring to be in a position where you might not... Um, it, it, where, where you're at a risk of, you know, letting someone down um, because, uh, you know, maybe a deadline hasn't changed, even though the sort of the reality of, uh, of you know, the time you have um, and the certainty surrounding your time does change. And so uh, for me, you know, at least in, in terms of sort of how that's changed the way that, that I've approached my work, there, there are a few different things. Um, for one thing, I have a lot more uncertainty right now about um, whether I'll have uh, large blocks of, of time to, to do research and, and writing and things like that, or to um, do other sorts of, uh, there are a lot of different aspects of a faculty member's job. Um, and so I, um, 
I sort of map out sort of my, my kids are back in daycare for now, knock on wood, um, but it can end at any time or they could, you know, all be sent home for a few weeks to quarantine. And so I've sort of mapped out different scenarios where, you know, if um, if my kids have to come home for two weeks, then um, and I still have to teach classes at the same time, then we'll just make sure to sort of schedule around that. So they're always out of the house. So they're not you know dropping in on Zoom classes. Um uh, the other thing that I did was it really forced me to reprioritize. Um, I had a lot of projects probably, you know, um, and, and sort of things that I wanted to do that maybe hadn't officially become projects. And I um, strategized and sort of moved on to the things where, you know, um, projects that had a really definite, tangible deadline um, and where there were other people who were counting on them meeting that deadline. You know, those were the things that I I tried to finish first, um, even with this other time, time commitment of, of caretaking, um, projects with colleagues, um, it, collaborations have been a lifesaver in some sense, um, because everyone, as I mentioned, you know, everyone's kind of going through some version of this, um, I think regardless of, of whether they have kids, um, and right now collaborations are helpful because even if you can't put in the time, um, at one moment, someone else, you know, your collaborator might be able to, and then when they can't um, put in the time at some point, you know, you can pick up that slack. And so that's been really important. I think the one other thing that that sort of really how the pandemic has kind of rearranged how I think about my work and my job is, um, it's sort of what it did to the organization, um, you know, of the university itself. And so, um, it created all of these new sorts of things that we have to do, um, these new expectations. All of the students were um, sent home and only some of them are back on campus right now. And all of the classes or most of the classes are online. Um, and there's, you know, we don't have the same campus community that we were able to have before the pandemic. That sort of, you know, that vibrant um, community that you spoke of earlier of, you know, living in a college town and just being surrounded by um, by. by you know, all of these young people. And um, that's created a few different sort of challenges and opportunities, I would say. Um, I'm trying to sort of, like no one, no single person can can substitute for that community or rebuild it um, because it's something that emerges more organically. But um, I've tried in my, my classes and also in sort of these, um, uh, in with the undergraduate, who I work with, uh, who work for me as research assistants to sort of um, create, you know, some connection back to, to the campus, even if we're not all there together. So all this uncertainty, this environment of constant change and uncertainty uh, required you to double down on being strategic, on scenario planning, on having backup plans, um, and uh, has required you to be flexible and adaptable. But it also sounds like uh, throughout, you have thought about the people who are counting on you, whether it's your children, of course, your husband, um, and, um, and, and your students, and, um, and, and those with whom you're collaborating. Uh, it's a lot to navigate, and uh, I appreciate your kind of giving voice to uh, how you're thinking through this and how you're handling it. Thanks. <laughs> what about you also? Uh, I know that in your work, um, you're always sort of working on the next large project, uh, but you also have a lot of competing short-term priorities and expectations um, you say academia is similar to other creative fields in that way, uh, that, uh, that the largest rewards often come from completing big projects. Um, but you also have all kinds of short-term priorities you have to attend to. Um, how, how do you, um, how do you navigate those competing priorities? That's a good question. Um, I, you know, I think that at least for me, and I, I know other people who do this as well, I try to set aside sort of distinct blocks of time to work on the bigger projects because um, it's really easy to, if it takes years, I learned um, only after I had started I, to, to finish a book um, and then to, you know, see it through to publication. I don't know, maybe I wouldn't have done it if I had not realized that, but um it's 
and if you don't sort of make consistent progress towards that goal, it's really easy for it to become uh, side sidelined um, in the face of all of these sort of more urgent, short term, more tangible requests, and you know, especially from other people. And so the main way that I've tried to navigate that in the past is just setting aside discrete blocks of time to um, not think about those other things um, and to, to focus on sort of trying to, to move the, the, the bigger sort of projects forward and also breaking those up in the, the sort of the, the book project um, up into smaller, more discrete pieces, um, creating some external accountability mechanisms like um, having you know, a, a workshop or a conference that I'm supposed to present a, a part of that project to. Um, that's something that seems to, to really help. <laughs> um, but, you know, I think it's important with, with these bigger projects, you know, one, to not not let them get sidelined when you have more urgent things. Um, and there are always sort of more urgent things that, that one can do, um, but also to figure out sort of ways to like break them up into smaller pieces. And then to sort of, at least I need some sort of accountability mechanism. Um, you know, whether it's like my friends bothering me about, um, you know, did you finish this chapter or, um, you know, the sort of the, the looming deadline of, uh, of, presenting it in front of a group of people. And so that's how I, I've managed some of that. I think the other part of your question is about, about sort of, well, what about these competing priorities and how do you determine what to prioritize? Um, and that's a really difficult issue. Um, and I think it goes a bit to that earlier question you had about sort of, you know, being in a um, hierarchical environment and having, you know, colleagues who also, I guess, will determine, you know, your the fate of your career. Right. Um, and, you know, it can be really hard to say no to, um, to requests, um, and, you know, in part for that reason and in part because, uh, you know, if you're fortunate and I, I've considered myself, you know, fortunate, um, you know, a lot of these requests also feel like opportunities and, um, and who wants to turn down an opportunity, um, you know, get to learn something new or meet new people or uh, have a new experience. And so it can be right, really, but of course that can be the rub, right? If, if, um, you know, if you, if you, if you take every opportunity, um, then you're, you know, you can put yourself in a position where you're in danger of, uh, of letting somebody down. Yeah, that is absolutely right. And a real risk. Um, and then, you know, you'll get no more opportunities because, um, you know, you affect your reputation. Um, so yeah. And I, so I, I've sort of started to, um, to realize like this situation is not really going to, to go away. And yeah. And the sort of the risk, of course, the, the, you're always sort of risking letting someone down. Um, and also, um, you know, harming, I guess your own reputation or, you know, future opportunities. And so I've been more judicious in deciding, um, what to say yes to. I try to almost always say yes to, um, things that I don't necessarily want to do, but that are, um, a, an important part of the job and a part of the job that sort of, uh, other people have, uh, have done to, to help me to. And so this is very, uh, abstract. So I guess to be more concrete, I'll say things like, um, like reviewing book manuscripts or, or journal articles, uh, it takes a lot of time to do that. It's sort of peer review is, um, a really important aspect of academia. It's generally uncompensated in my field. Uh, but I, I can't imagine, um, you know, saying no if um, if I'm asked to do something and I'm, you know, in any way qualified to uh, do that. Um, and so, you know, that's maybe the set of things that it doesn't <laughs> doesn't move me. Um, you know, it's a uh, uh, it's time consuming and um, uh, not necessarily, you know, the most fun thing to do. There are some some things about about it be illuminating. Um, but, but I think it's just important and, you know, we all kind of have, um, an obligation to, to try to do that. Um, so those are the things that I, I do try to not say no to. Um, and then, you know, with teaching related things, I try to set expectations, um, early so that, um, you know, that there's sort of, it's, it's clear sort of what, like the scope of like normal requests would be. Um, uh, to sort of moderate, um, those sorts of demands from, from getting out of hand. If somebody's thinking, you know, how do I get to be more like Chloe Thurston? You know, what's your career advice for them? 
Uh, that's a very specific, um, uh, you know, very specific career goal. Um, although I'll say, you know, I do, I do talk to students who want to know sort of, you know, how they, how, how they could become a professor, um, and, you know, what, if they should, <laughs> um, and, you know, what steps they would take. And, um, I think that the main advice that I would give is just to, you know, kind of show up every day and just keep working at it. And, um, you know, things that sort of become, that, that seem sort of, uh, confusing or impenetrable or like difficult just kind of start to get easier when you just kind of you know build a habit of um of doing this every day like writing every day or um of you know if you're if you're sort of on the shyer side of like trying to to reach out to people and you know sharing sharing work that's early or things like that um but you know i think it's really it sort of academia does reward persistence in that sense um in other ways, it's a very difficult um, job market. Uh, and so to say it rewards persistence doesn't necessarily mean that it will um, for for everyone. Um, there are lots of sort of unknowns involved. But I, I think persistence um, seems to be seems to be the thread in common with, you know, myself and, and my colleagues um, just show up every day and <laughs> keep working at it. And what's your what are you excited about right now? What's your next chapter? Um, well, I am working on a book right now with um, my wonderful and brilliant colleague, Emily Zakin. Um, she's at Johns Hopkins uh, on the um, sort of rise and fall of debtors movements um, in the United States, um, sort of over the from the um, 18th century to, to today. And what's the contribution there? De- what is a debtors movement? Oh, that's a good question. Well, um, so what is a debtors movement? Well, we we look at um, the sort of the politics of um, of bankruptcy and other forms of debt relief policies in the United States. You could think about like foreclosure moratorium, um, uh, mortgage moratorium, things like that. And um, you know, one of the things that we're really interested in is um, there's a rise. There's a lot of rising advocacy right now around things to do with student debt. Um, there are these organizations like Strike Debt um, and other sorts of uh, efforts to um, to sort of reduce or even cancel student debt. And it's a really interesting development in the sense that we haven't seen a lot of um, uh, of movements uh, of political sort of uh, activity in recent decades um, aimed at debt relief. It's just not a politically salient topic. It's sort of stigmatizing. Um, so uh, to see people um, coming out and, and pushing for that is, is really interesting. It's puzzling. Um, and so one of the things that we the, the sort of led us to do is to think about the role of uh, earlier um, earlier movements. Um, so, we, you know, we, we just got really interested in this, you know. Well, so like, why do you see these like robust movements of, uh, of you know, like angry farmers <laughs> um, changing, you know, mobilizing and changing, um, changing the law? And, you know, why did that disappear over the 20th century, even though credit became more ubiquitous and um, so did bankruptcy? And then, you know, why are we seeing some um, some hints at that today? So that's sort of what, what motivates this this question. Yeah, I guess you'd be a very good person to ask this. One of the things that puzzles me, one of the objections to student loan relief that I hear just sort of in the political ecosystem is, oh, well, that's not fair that, you know, some people paid their debts back and some people didn't. And, you know, what's the relevance of fairness to debt, fairness to those who have um, borne the the burden of debt somehow in relation to those whose debt might be relieved? Yeah, that's a that's the question, right? And I think that that's the question that animates a lot of these debates right now. Um, you, you know, you've identified it. Um, there's the question of it, particularly when we're talking about student loans, where you know, there, I think there's the view of this this person who's taken out a large debt, but to increase their human capital, right? <laughs> um, and uh, you know, and so is it fair to relieve them of of that debt um, when? you know, that first of all, that, that education can't be repossessed. Um, and you know, it's maybe allowing them some opportunities that other people 
might not have. Um, and then also, as you mentioned too, you know, there, there's also the issue of people who've, who've already successfully paid, paid their debts. Um, and so I, I guess this is in some ways why I'm really, um, curious about these developments is, you know, for those reasons that you point to, like there's, there's this sort of morality that is attached to issues of credit and debt. Um, and I, you know, I think, and, um, I think my co-author would probably agree that, you know, that seemed to be a pretty, a pretty strong set of motives for people to not really complain too much in earlier, um, decades, uh, even, even groups of people who are like clearly, um, facing unexpected expenses, medical debts, for example. Um, so to see that change, um, you know, is something that's really interesting to explain because I agree with you that it's, um, those arguments, you know, have a lot of sway and, you know, to sort of see them sort of disappear or to, you know, see people, um, pushing for this agenda regardless of, you know, despite sort of, um, their detractors is very interesting to me. Well, do you have a closing word of career advice? I, I think that, it's important to seek out, um, you know, really supportive colleagues. Um, and if you're lucky enough to be in an environment that, you know, mostly consists of those, then, uh, do everything that you can to, to contribute to that, that culture. Um, and you know, if there's sort of fewer and far farther between, then, you know, I think it's really important to sort of build pockets of, um, of, of support, um, you know, in whatever sort of organization you are, uh, in. Assistant Professor of Political Science at Northwestern University, uh, and my good friend, uh, thank you so much for being a guest on The Indispensables. Thank you, Bruce. In our next episode, I'll talk with Peter Stavisky, who's the CEO of the Barrington Media Group. I remember Peter as the coolest kid in the third grade, but we talked about his journey building the zillion-dollar media company. If you like this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review. You can also follow us on Twitter at goto underscore podcast. That's at goto underscore podcast. Learn more about gotoism in my new book, The Art of Being Indispensable at Work, available now from Harvard Business Review Press, wherever books are sold. And you can learn more about our work at Rainmaker Thinking by visiting us at rainmakerthinking.com. Until next time, stay strong and stay indispensable.